When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So he said, I don't think this is going to work. And I just looked him directly in the eye because it didn't make sense based off of our experiences together. And I felt like where the relationship was going and the other conversations we had had. And he said, yeah, I don't think that we can continue this. And and I said, why? And he said, well, I just don't think I could ever bring you home to my family. And I said, is it because I'm black? And he said, well, well, yeah. (laughs) And I was like, wow. All right. Like this is a senior executive at a tech company in San Francisco. He probably tells his friends, I'm not racist, I'm all these things, whatever. But at the end of the day, just couldn't picture himself with somebody who looks like me, regardless of who I am as a person, regardless of how I make him feel as a person. And that was pretty hard to hear in this day and age. My name is Tess Thomas, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Tess Thomas. And Tess wears a few really interesting hats. By day, she's the director of talent at Paradigm Strategy, a leading diversity, equity, and inclusion firm. But she's also an avid world traveler, foodie, and photographer. Definitely check out thelaughingtraveler.com. Because for Tess, all things are fed literally by her obsession to see the world and kind of get outside of her comfort zone. And Sharon, another fun fact about Tess is... We don't know her. We met her through one of our past guests, Castell, who was like, yep. you got to talk to Tess. And yep. what a great conversation. Our friend network is expanding. <laughs> yeah, it's we always ask our guests, like, who else should be on the show? Because we're trying to get out of our network of marketers. Hello, mm-hmm. my sister and all of your doctor friends who say we don't. We, we just recorded a show with a doctor the other yeah, day. We finally met people that are not marketers. Yeah. sister, or, or entrepreneurs. <laughs> or entrepreneurs. <laughs> Everyone's an entrepreneur, as you tell me, Sharon. But, and we're finally kind of getting to this point. I mean, this episode will air, we're recording this probably a few months before this will air, but like people we don't know are reaching out about the show. And I'm a little scared of that because we're talking about things, including in this episode, that shit that gets you trolled, shit that gets you in trouble. I don't know, but I like having the conversation, but I I worry about it sometimes. Yeah. I really enjoyed our time with Tess. I think she... I think she got really deep and personal in ways that I didn't expect. Like I really enjoyed our our talk about dating. So definitely, I'm traumatized by all the flashbacks. Yeah, from that conversation. Yeah, and just kind of you know the opportunity to kind of even evaluate my own my own experience with dating, dating outside the race. You know, trying to figure out my own motivations for some of that sometimes, and other people's motivations. And other criticism. Yep. 
other people's motivations of dating me? Like, you know, do they really like me or do they just want to check the box of saying that they've dated an Asian woman? You know, does this fulfill some kind of fantasy that they've always had that those, all of those types of things. I fulfill everyone's fantasy, right, Roman? <laughs> There's like no way I can answer that question correctly. So I'm just going to say no and offend you because okay. I think your husband's really cool and I love my wife. So. That's perfect. That's a perfect answer. You are my podcast sibling. So it's gross for you to say that podcast Thank sibling. You. I, I started off being your podcast pal and now I've now we're siblings. Step siblings. Step siblings. Step siblings. You're the sibling I, I don't tell people about. Oh no. Podcast. It's getting worse. <laughs> I'm going to buy your kids artwork, you know, like their hustle. I totally want to commission them for art. So yeah, I'm all about that. You support their college fund and you know, (laughs) I'll keep, I'll I'll keep hopping on these recordings with you. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to like this chat with Tess. I promise. Enjoy it. Tess, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. Thanks for being here, Tess. Great to be fair. Yeah. Tess, I think people may have heard of you. You've you've got this blog and you've traveled, you've got this rad DNI job. You live in Denver, which is kind of cool. And I guess people don't know who you were before that. Can you tell us a story about something that happened or something about growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually in Los Angeles. I just recently relocated to Los Angeles from San Francisco. So it's been a few years since I've lived in Denver, but I grew up in a very small, very small Colorado mountain town, like a lot of dirt roads, no stoplights, like just to bring you in a little bit. And we actually spent our summers in the mountains even deeper than where we we actually grew up. And big fisher family, we used to go fishing a lot, used to go hiking a lot. And one of my sisters who has been unkind to me, I think, until the last four or five years. So we had a little bit of an interesting relationship there. But we were out once and it was her responsibility to watch over me while my mom and her friend were, were fishing. And then all of a sudden I run up to my mom an hour later and I've got brown stuff like all over my face and like coming out of my mouth and my hands are all dirty. And I get closer to my mother and she's like, what is on your face? What is that smell? Long story short, my oldest sister thought it would be hilarious to tell me that this cow pie, this piece of cow crap, you know, no. on the ground is chocolate cake. No. And so me, obviously also wanting to be like my bigger sister and her friend, totally dove in, put it in my mouth, ate it, and then obviously the aftermath ensued. So she was in serious trouble for the rest of the summer. And I honestly couldn't talk about the story until I was probably 16. I wasn't comfortable enough as a, as a person to do that. But there you go. Wow. That sounds so traumatic and terrible. It was very traumatic. We are now good. We now have a good relationship. But like I said, it's it's taken us maybe 31 years. So I did something similar to my sister, but it was with Vegemite. Oh, <laughs> it God. was something that oh. was edible. <laughs> Which but, is kind of just as bad. <laughs> no yeah. kidding. Well, I, no, it I, is. I've known many an Oz person to love Vegemite. Yeah, on but they're toast. dumb. Sorry, oh, of all our three, our three friends in Australia, <laughs> our three listeners in Australia. <laughs> my recent ex is from Sydney and I tried it. I tried it before. I tried it again with him. No, it wasn't the reason we broke up, but it was up there. I got back from a trip to Australia as a teenager and my sister was going through my stuff. Would you bring me? And I was like, I got you this thing. And it's the little free butter thing you got at breakfast. Like It's like chocolate. They put it on everything. I sold it like Nutella. <laughs> yeah. Chocolate. Look on her face to this day. Priceless, and I know, I know, my sister. I never tasted it, and I assumed it was good because literally. Oh yeah, it's great, Sharon. It's just like Nutella. Get in there. Spread it on everything. Yeah, (laughs) I guess if you cut it with a lot of butter, it's okay. But butter makes most things better. So yeah, butter makes everything better. Butter, not a sponsor of this podcast. So Tess, how are you 
I know you're different from that kid. (laughs) (laughs) I know your tastes have evolved. How are you similar to that little girl in that small town of Colorado? Gosh, it's interesting. So we lived in that small town in Colorado for a few years, and then we moved to San Diego, and then we moved to Minnesota, and then we moved back. And then Wait, Minnesota? Graduated. You yeah. can't skip that. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I want to hear about Minnesota. experiencing racism, which was fascinating. I have to ask, what's that experience? Because I've had those in Alabama. What is Minnesota racism? Well, so, and this is important. So I'm mixed race. So my dad's black and my mom's white. She's grew up in middle-class family in, in Omaha, Nebraska, not a huge fan of Nebraska as a state. It's also fairly racist from my personal experiences that I've been back as an adult recently, et cetera. But long story short, we grew up in a single family household in my mother's household. And therefore we we kind of exclusively lived in white spaces. So not only in the hometown that I grew up in were my sister and I the only people of color in the entire town, and I'm not being hyperbolic, but then San Diego was obviously different. But then when we moved to Austin, Minnesota, which their claim to fame is the Hormel pig plant, and that's about it. That's like really, really about it from Austin, Minnesota. So again, we're here we are in, in mostly white spaces. And I got called the N-word in middle school, or I was in elementary school, in the hallway. And I was just like, I've heard of this word, and I know it's not okay. And I think that I should probably feel not good right now. And I, and I definitely did. And it was just, yeah, it just overall was not great. And then growing up as a mixed race person who culturally is more aligned, I think, to, to white culture, because grew up in my mother's household, eating her food, going to predominantly white schools. But then we look the way that we do. And even though we are light skinned, still very clearly not part of the traditional fold. So always kind of growing up with this sense of otherness, this sense of not quite belonging. And that's been punctuating my life and my kind of relationship with race and identity my entire life. And I think only in the last few years, my much more clear and comfortable about what that means. Traveling the world and even living abroad in Argentina to an extent helped me get there. But it's also been a lot of self-study, a lot of really kind of hard conversations about my role, the role of my mother in my life, all of those things. When was that moment? Because I mean, it's hard for me to pinpoint it as well, that sense of otherness. But when did you become okay with that sense of otherness? When did you become more comfortable in your skin? Was it after the traveling? Was it just once you're not a teenager anymore? When do you feel like you finally became comfortable with it? Yeah, it, it definitely wasn't until recently in the last couple of years. So even when I went to college, that was the first time really going to school with other other Black people and other people of color, right? And other just actually having real diversity. And then I very quickly realized that I was not Black enough for the Black people. They're like, why do you talk the way that you do? Why do you not understand what we're talking about musically? Or we're talking about of like what we're eating for New Year's Eve. Wait, wait, wait. Do Black people eat something on New Year's Eve? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh, this, here goes my black card. Um, what, is it? what is it? It's the black eyed peas. You oh, black eyed peas on your oh, ears. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Is that, so I gotta ask, I gotta ask, is that yeah. an African thing? My mom, she's Indian, but she was born in Africa and she makes us eat black eyed peas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. I, mean, I would argue, and I'm a huge foodie, so but I would argue that most of the black and southern food and, and that culture is coming from Africa, right? You go to pl- places in Africa and, and they're eating a lot of the similar ingredients, the similar types of preparations for different things. So yes. Yeah. I just always thought bad things, it's good luck. My mom would be like, if you don't eat this thing that you don't like on January 1st, but these are gross, mom. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of being between both worlds. It's you're not black enough. You think you're, I hate to say, because I I did think I was white. You think you're white until you leave the household. Oh, completely. Mm -hmm. Kind of did. So yeah, I mean, I think my entire young adultness was punctuated by a lot of these different experiences. And even after I graduated from university and I moved to downtown Denver and I was like, oh yeah, 
big city. I'm in my 20s. I'm living it up kind of. I made no money at the time. So doing my best to experience that. But even still there and even still then, and diversity in Denver is different. I don't know. It's just a I love Colorado. I love, you know, love the mountains, but Denver is probably not a city I'll ever live in again. But I ended up moving to Argentina and ended up staying there for three years in Buenos Aires. How old were you? I was 29, 28, 29. Yeah. And lived there for about three years. And that was also when I first started traveling because I think it's at the same time now that there's a loophole for visas. You can get a tourist visa for 90 days. You can pop out. Yeah, pop out. Yep, you can pop out, pop back in, and then it resets your visa. Take the ferry to Uruguay. Yeah. Exactly. So I was like, had to leave the country every three months. And that was when I first started actually making decent money. And so was like, oh, I can afford this. Let me go to Brazil. Let me go to Chile. Let me go to insert whatever country or, or city that I want to. And it just, it gave me a worldly perspective of who I am. Also spending time in Brazil where everyone looks like me and you're not the othered person. That was the first time in my entire life that I've ever experienced that. And it's still one of the countries that I gravitate towards because of that. Granted, they are so, they don't understand when I don't speak Portuguese or my Portuguese <laughs> is total crap, but, but it's fine. So that was kind of the first experience where I actually just felt like I was a part of a culture, even though it wasn't my culture, which was confusing and was very mindful of like, what does this mean? And I don't want to be appropriating Brazilian culture or whatever, but it's interesting to go through the world looking the way that I do. And I do look very Brazilian or passes kind of Afro-Latina, if you will. And then I, now I speak Spanish, dance salsa a lot. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting about the experiences when like you're traveling and the things that, that shape and help form your world. And then after that, I moved to San Francisco, which I think we all acknowledge has its own issues with diversity and, and inclusion to an extent. But that's where I also really just started to dive into self-study and reading a lot and listening to podcasts and I had more Black friends for the first time in my life, really, and, and really kind of sought to understand their experiences and their culture. And then being a world traveler, you realize how the world sees you, but also being a light-skinned woman with curly hair and being mixed race. And depending on where in the world you're going, they perceive you differently. So I don't know, it's just, it's a fascinating experience being in that other category, right? And then kind of, but also kind of being able to be a chameleon in a sense and realize that maybe it's safer for me to navigate Columbia by myself than it is for the blonde haired, blue eyed person, because they're, yeah. they're not going well, to be right? Do, do you <laughs> totally. feel a, did you feel a sense of, until you open your mouth at least, right? Yeah. Do you feel a sense of anonymity? You're not the American target when you're traveling? Yeah, a lot. Depends on where I go. Obviously not in Asia. I love Asia, but I'm more of a novelty there. And there's so many people that have photos of, of me on their cell phones and on their iPads. <laughs> and, and they come over and they'd like touch oh, your hair all and the stuff, time, right? Yeah. All the time. And they're like, Beyonce. I'm like, oh, bless you. No, <laughs> not, not, not Beyonce. But so, yeah. So, so that's one of the reasons I also enjoy South America a lot. Because like I said, you go to certain parts of Colombia or Paraguay to an extent, and obviously Brazil, not Argentina, because it's a, a lot of European folks of descent there. But yeah, so that's kind of one of the, the big draws there. And then on the other interesting side, so I've realized too, so when you go to Europe, there is a lot of racism in Paris, et cetera, other, other parts of other cities in Europe, but they also get a lot of African immigrants there. And so this is where colorism comes into it too, because your dark skinnedness or light skinnedness kind of also dictates your experience. And this happens in Brazil too, to an extent, but I realized that I was in Croatia two years ago and I'd had other darker skinned friends who said I didn't have a great time. I felt that racism was prevalent or I was in Greece and I got called names or whatever. And then I go there and they're not assuming those things. They're not assuming that I'm an African immigrant because I'm light skinned and you 
can't quite place me. So yeah, in one sense, it gives me a privilege of that. But then on the other sense, I'm like, yeah, but I'm just as black as this next person. And I don't lean into that, if you will. So well, in America, as awesome as it is overseas, when you're back here, whether you're Trevor Noah, or you, yeah. the one drop test, you're black in our society. 100%. 100%. Exactly. So. And again, and I should couch that. I say that like that's a bad thing. But what I'm saying is the societal treatment of you is you're not mixed. I have nephews and nieces who are half black and half Indian. Barack Obama, he is our black president. Yeah. And that's fine. But there's all the great trappings of it, but there are more bad trappings of it in our society, unfortunately. And yeah. And it's interesting too, like, because passing is comes into a role here. I have black friends who are white passing and, you know, they acknowledge what their experience is and how it differs from their friends or the other members of their family who aren't white passing. And obviously there's like a whole his- history of that, you know, and people in you know civil rights movement, some, some people they're like, I'm passing and I'm just going to go for it because, you know, I, I'm fearing for my life and I'm, you know, no, I can't otherwise have access to this higher educational institution or whatever it might be. So, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, even as you kind of talked about your own experience because you are lighter skinned and you can kind of, you know, you look like you could be Latina or something else like your own. As I was hearing you talk, I was like, wow, her own experience has been, that's actually the first time I've heard of the term white passing, but it probably is so different in that way than that immediate. To be honest, when I saw you on Zoom, I like kind of just assumed you were Latina until you started telling us that well, you Well, because were. all the bio stuff you said was about your travels Yeah, because you had been to Argentina, and, and I just thought you were from South America. I was like, yeah. And then and then you started talking about your own background. I'm like, oh, I ha- totally had that wrong. So even I am guilty of, I made you Latina passing. <laughs> oh, but, that's, but that's the common experience, right? And my own experience has helped me realize that. But even just learning about and reading into other folks' experience and just the history of it too, you know, realizing that other people's perceptions define you often, right? Regardless of your culture, regardless of your identity, I identify as Black, but I also identify as mixed race. And I know that I'm able to do those things, but other people will decide who I am and then act accordingly, act appropriately. And now things like that matter a lot with everything going on <laughs> around racial <laughs> racial justice in the US. And on one hand, I'm like, there's obviously a lot of mixed feelings, a lot of very heavy feelings, and it comes up in our work a lot. But yeah, on one hand, I'm like, okay, well, maybe, maybe I'm passing enough that I'm not going to get, <laughs> I'm not going to be a target for one of these police officers, but also maybe I'm not. And even just having that conversation with yourself is, is heavy. So yeah. And you work in a firm that completely specializes in diversity and inclusion. But when you were younger, what did you want to be? I wanted to be a photographer for National Geographic. <laughs> okay. Which to be fair, when I travel, I do a lot of photography that that's like my my main blog that I have. And also I haven't pursued that as a, as a career. I'm not like a technical photographer. I use just my iPhone. I also would not have been able to deal with the like, go and sit in this mud bog to catch right. this, <laughs> this photo of this, you know, purple <laughs> dolphin or whatever. Oh, well, there's like the, the bugs are yeah, eating you. That's yeah. not my level of comfort. So, <laughs> but no, I've, I've looked at your photography and I would recommend everyone go check it out because there's a curation nature to it. And I hate to use this. I'm using this word literally, but also it's about framing. You're, you see a shot and you take it versus I'm waiting for the perfect shot. And then after, yeah, so there's, there's a really good lens that you have, not literally, but it's like the way you're seeing the world, the thing you're trying to evoke and the things you see versus you're not just taking pictures, I guess is what I'd say. 
Exactly. Exactly. It's also funny. So one of my ex, the one I went to Argentina with, he was really trying to pursue photography and be really serious about it. And it would just annoy me because we'd go and it'd be like this beautiful scene and he'd spend an hour trying to like set up his camera and do the whole thing. And I'd like jump in. Being in the, exactly being in the moment and I like jump in and I'll take them, take the photo and then move on. <laughs> and so even when I'm traveling, I don't know, I have a hard time with folks that are like, oh no, no, I'm, you know, got to sit down and get the perfect shot. I'm like, yeah, but you're missing it. Like you're, yeah, but even, you're even with my balance. kid, even with my kid pro tip, I don't know what the shortcut is on iPhone, but like on, I have a pixel and if I double tap the power button and I sometimes do it while it's in my pocket because I see something unfolding and it's ready to go. And I just hit the volume thing before anyone knows. It's kind of stealth photography yes. because when with my daughter, more so now, I'm capturing moments versus the minute she sees or notices I have the camera out, she changes what her perception of the moment is. Yeah. 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 My kids will just start acting. As soon as yeah. they know that they're being <laughs> video, the weird dances come out. I'm like, you know, that's just not, that's not who you really are though, man. Just be yourself. <laughs> Do the other weird dance, please. Right. <laughs> do, do the first weird dance you were doing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Something my wife used to do, we used to backpack around all the time. And most of the photos I took were mine. And she has a few. And occasionally she'd be like, hey, I want to take a picture of you. And what she would do with her little Panasonic Lumix is I, she would act like she was framing the shot. Whereas in reality, she was filming a video of me fidgeting. (laughs) Oh, nice. And I actually did that to my daughter the other night. Cause like, daddy, take a picture. I was like, okay. And I just, she's like, why aren't you taking it? I was like, no, do me, give me another. And I just, I have this whole like three minute scene of her thinking it's great. Yeah. It's so candid. Yeah. It's so real. (laughs) I love it. You have to use that trickery now, it seems. Yeah. So what did your parents want you to be? Oh, gosh. I mean, so I'm the only person in my immediate family to go to university and graduate. So my mother hadn't. And I don't know, there wasn't there wasn't this direction. There wasn't this, oh, are you going to go to college? And are you going to like, how are your grades in relation to like achieving that goal? So I didn't have that direction. I didn't have a lot of that. I think my mother, like any mother, wanted us to just be happy and do whatever we wanted that we enjoyed. But we came from a fairly challenging economic environment. You know, my mother always worked two jobs and wasn't often home when we got home from school because she was going to the second one. And and then I was like at the mercy of my sister, the one who made me eat cow shit, by the way. So imagine what my after after school yeah. experiences were like. So I don't know. It's it's interesting. So part of me was just very driven because I think I saw how much she struggled and how much she worked and how hard it was. It was just so, everything was so hard. Nothing came easy. And I think that I didn't want that experience for myself. But I also kind of fell into an academic advisor at high school that said, you should apply for college. You might get in. And so kind of did that. And then, yeah, I mean, and throughout my experiences, I found mentors and other folks to kind of help help guide me in my career my ex-partner was great at that, kind of helped me move into the talent space and the recruiting space. So a lot of it is kind of self-directed, but also I, I acknowledge and I will give her credit for like the strength of realizing of one, I think what what a person is capable of doing and how hard you can work, but focusing your energy and other things. And then obviously it, it helped that I didn't have children. I don't have children. That freedom obviously allows for a lot of other flexibility, at least when you're coming from my background and, and not navigating that with children on top of it. So do you feel like I know you don't have the sense of other that you used to. I'm not saying it's not there, but it's kind of, I think it persists. I still have it. Oh, it's there. It creeps up in in (laughs) moments. And the moments I notice that it comes up is when I start changing the way I act, right? When I pull out my Southern accent to charm a lady who might be scared of the bearded Indian man, right? For sure. Do you have those moments where you feel like you're having to act like something that you're not? 
to fit in? I mean, I would argue that a, a lot of Black people do this. Like, we're not going to go to a nice store in flip-flops and sweatpants and expect to be seen by that store clerk and or treated appropriately or also not be followed by the security guard, right? That's a legit experience. But even if I'm dressed in whatever, dressed before I'm going out and I have all the things on and all the jewelry on, that might still happen or I might still be completely ignored by that by that, that sales clerk. So I think there's a much more of an awareness of how the world see me or they might see me. So, so that changes. And I would also say that where I feel that otherness come into play happens a lot in dating because I think it is more complicated to date as a mixed race person unless you're dating because it's like, I don't know, people say, oh, I prefer to date in my race or date outside of my race. And it's like, well, what, what does that mean for you then if you're mixed race? Are you going to find somebody who also has the same mix of parents that you do? And that still comes up, right, of like not being black enough for some of the black men that I date or being othered or exoticized by the white or, or other non-Black people that I, that I date. So that's probably like the most frustrating part of it, that where it still comes up into my life, that it's still something that I have to be navigating. And when I'm dating people who aren't Black, I'm always kind of like, well, is this, is this a fetish thing? Are you just dating me because you think I'm exotic? Are you, have you dated other Black women before? Am I your first? Because like this kind of matters. And I don't know, there's like a lot of things that go into that. I am so glad I'm not dating anymore. Oh my God. <laughs> Everything you just said. Yo, it's hard and again, I'm a, and I'm a dude. I'm a dude and I'm not mixed race, but oh my God, I'm so yeah. glad it's over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <know>. you know. <laughs> well, when you're dating on your side, do you have criteria? Do you have an idea of what he's like, or even what racial background he's Mm -hmm. from? I mean, I have very specific criteria about how this person operates in the world, how they treat other people, how they approach personal relationships, communication. Like I'm very, very clear on that. Dated a lot in my 36 years. And it's interesting. So growing up, the people that I got crushes on were skaters with blonde hair, because that was literally the only people around me. But I've dated, in hindsight now, in my last 36 years, I've, I've literally dated everybody from every continent and background and have a very strong physical attraction to a lot of different type of people, which I think is great. I don't pigeonhole myself into one like physical type. But I've had some pretty pretty horrible experiences dating people who at the end turned out to be fairly racist in the last few years and what the white white men and so i'm at this point now and i have this conversation with my best girlfriend a lot of dating a man of color isn't automatically going to mean that he is on the path to doing the work and to understanding his own level of awareness and wokeness but it's going to probably be a little bit better than dating a white person who i have to explain to them me not showing up at the grocery, at that store in sweatpants and in flip-flops. At least they'll have a better understanding of a starting point. But that also I've proven <laughs> proven over and over again that that doesn't happen. I'll be on a date with a, a Black guy and we'll be talking about some of this stuff. And then I'll say, oh, yeah, well, how do you feel about people that are LGBTQ plus? And he'll be like, yeah, that's different. I'm like, okay, we're not going to date anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> it's hard, right? Because like I'm, yeah. I'm really focused on trying to be inclusive and trying to acknowledge equality means literally for everyone, not just folks who look like us. But I think it's hard. I think it's hard to find people that are on that path that also haven't been snatched up by other amazing people yet. So, And you just might be more enlightened than the average Joe as well. That could be fair. Yeah. yeah. Still have a lot of work to do. But what I think is interesting is your preferences. Something you said earlier is because your willingness or your desire, those are both terrible words to describe this, those, (laughs) but because of you wanting to date people of all backgrounds, you are forcing yourself 
consciously or subconsciously to see past the stereotypes of all black men are like this, all white men are like this, all mixed people are like this, all Asian people are like that. Because it sounds like what you're looking for isn't tall, dark, and handsome. You see tall, dark, and handsome, or you see handsome or whatever in everything. And you're looking, it's almost like you've articulated your deal breakers. Yeah. More than anything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So yeah, so I, I think I always, if we were having a cocktail right now and hanging out and be like, oh, well, I know what I don't want. And it's these hey, it's 11 a.m. Right? I'm drinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish. Oh, yeah. It's 8.30 here, but yeah. hey. <laughs> so I'm very clear on what I don't want, but I, I, I try to be open to what I do want. But honestly, and after I dated somebody last year who ended up being explicitly racist, not even not even unconsciously, like it was, it was pretty shitty. And after that, I was like, I can't date white people anymore. I just cannot do it. Like this, I can't go through this again. I can't deal with this again. Wait, then what I is, also, talk more about the this. The this. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you that. But then really quickly, I'll just say that like, I also don't think that eliminating an entire race of people is also yeah. the right yeah. thing to do. That's not right. helping me, right? And I know that there are white men out there who have done the work and who are willing to have the conversations and who are excited to do that. But I'm also no longer willing and being the person who's teaching them and educating them. Your life is not a this is us episode. That's not your job. That's not your job. Has been my job really ever, but especially now. So, and oh yeah, I'll tell you, tell you what happened. So dated this guy, he was from Texas, votes Democrat, but his family's Trump supporters and legacy Republican voters. And we dated for like three months or something what was it? I don't even remember. Something happened and he said something about, I don't think that this is going to work. And I just looked him directly in the eye because it didn't make sense based off of our experiences together. And I felt like where the relationship was going and the other conversations we had had. And he said, yeah, I, I don't think that we can continue this. And, and I said, why? And he said, well, I just don't think I could ever bring you home to my family. And I said, is it because I'm black? And he said, well, well yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow. All right. Like this is a senior executive at a tech company in San Francisco. He's like the Amy Cooper of SF in the male male version. Votes Democrat. You know, he probably tells his friends not racist and all these things, whatever. But at the end of the day, just couldn't see himself, couldn't picture himself with somebody who looks like me, regardless of who I am as a person, regardless of how I make him feel as a person, as a man, as whatever. And that was pretty hard to hear in in this day and age. Yeah, it hits really close to home. I mean, you literally have described every dating of a white person that I've ever had in my life. I am so sorry. No, but it's (laughs) because I was really trying to hone in on what was that this. And it's like dating starts as fun in relationships when you're younger in your twenties and your thirties. But then at some point, okay, where is this going? And did I just waste all this time? That's kind of why at some point I learned my lesson. I was like, well, she's not going to bring me home. Right. Mm. And that sucks because I'm going to bring you home. And by the way, I have to deal with a lot of shit to bring a white girl home to my house. Right. And totally. Or don't a even black girl or a Hispanic girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's just, it's finally, I don't want to do the work anymore. <laughs> that, that's it. I don't have the energy for this. And it takes something from me. I lost a lot in that conversation and after that conversation and even reflecting more on the time that we had spent together and the other moments of implicit or explicit racism that that happened. I write as well. And I shared some of my work with him and he was blown away by it. And he was like, well, I want to tell my mother about you. And I also would love for her to read some of your work. I think that that would also help in the conversation. And I think in hindsight, he was like trying to figure out ways to qualify me, qualify me in his life as like, no, she's black, but she's a good writer, but she's successful professionally, but et cetera, et cetera. So that was in hindsight, obviously, had that statement not come out in that moment, it wouldn't have worked anyways. And he's an asshole. But well, but some of some of the doing the work is also I mean, I get it's just doing the work. It's like, how dare he speaks for his family? 
sure they might have all of the things on paper of someone who might not be accepting. True. And so he actually doesn't want to do the work of sorting it out with his family. Never mind if it's bad, but they might be okay with it. I mean, Sharon, I have to ask. Yeah, I knew you were going to go. Yeah, well, you, you have a more. more I was my, waiting. I was wait, I was like, okay, when's Robin going to talk about my personal life? Go ahead. <laughs> because both Sharon and my sister, listener of the podcast, brought and you and my sister are both Asian, yeah. Chinese, and Indian. You both brought a black man home. Yeah, and I'm assuming you brought. I know my sister brought a white man home prior, right? What was that? Because that's a very different type of work. Yeah. And yeah, so that's the big reveal test is I didn't marry a Chinese guy and my parents when they first met my now husband who they love. It was a big shock. And I had brought home a white guy before, which was also, it was a shock in a different way than bringing home a black guy for sure. It was easier to swallow that than it was to swallow the idea of their daughter dating a black guy. But I think as you were talking, part of it is in my own experience has been me learning my own biases that existed before all of this, and then me learning even more in the course of our relationship about how similar we are. I actually, before we got married, race was something that I saw as something that would like kind of separate us or just from through the lens of, hey, we're from different cultures or we eat different foods for New Year's or whatever those things are. We have different heritages and we have different belief systems. But Now we've been married now for almost 10 years. We have two kids. Both families love each other. All of that initial awkwardness is now gone. It's dissipated. I see beyond that, but even more, it's like expanded my understanding of all other cultures as well, because I'm living it on a day-to-day basis. And so I think it is, it's interesting the story that you tell, because it's one of those things where I think you can't screen for that on a first date, right? You can screen for the racist the outward racist on the first date for sure. And that's an easy, hey, I'm never going to see this guy again. I can't even believe I showed up. But it's the three month, the six month, the one year relationships where you get so deep and you're like, I thought I knew this person so well, but they've put up their own barriers. And I'm saying that because I think even my own experience, I knew my parents weren't going to be accepting of him first date, second date, whatever. I knew growing up, my parents always wanted me to marry a Chinese guy. So anyone that wasn't Chinese was probably going to be a hurdle. But I personally did the work to kind of, I was able to accept. I mean, it was pretty tough, but like at some point I had made a, a pretty strong call that despite whether or not my mom or my dad didn't want to talk to me anymore, I was going to keep going, right? This was my relationship. This is someone that I love. And I kind of knew they would come around. I think there was a faith in the back of my mind to think my parents, like my parents are going to wake up one day and I don't know what day that's going to be, but it's going to happen. But that was my own decision. And what helped I think was my husband being like, your parents are going to get over it. So he was actually kind of saying to me, they're going to get over it. You need to make the decision to get over it too. And I was like, whoa, I'm crying now, but that's a very different conversation to have to like actually have been called out like that. And I was like, "Hmm, you're right. If I love you, then I should just love you. I should love you because the world is going to accept us more or better or because it's going to be an easier path. So I think I'm not sure what your conversations have been in those moments with your previous partners, but I think sometimes calling them out on it might steer the conversation differently because I know for us, it definitely like pivoted and it made me realize I've got to shine a light on my own biases and my own concerns. Like I think I had a lot of anxieties around just what's everyone else going to think? Or, I mean, primarily the family, but also just kind of not knowing or, or, or not being familiar 
with having to to do something different in that way. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and it's interesting. I mean, I have some awareness, some knowledge of a lot of cultures and Chinese culture is one of them, right? That your parents tend to expect for you to marry somebody that is Chinese, right? And that, that happens in so many different cultures, right? This is not just unique to parts of Asia, but I think that, I don't know, your husband's response is perfect for that. It's like, well, if you're lucky enough to find your person, and if that person, whether they're in your life for five years or 50 years, you should be advocating for them and fighting for them and fighting for that love and that relationship. And I also feel that if we date somebody who is different from us, which is everybody, right? Oftentimes it's gender, oftentimes it's uh, race or ethnicity, oftentimes it's socioeconomic status, insert whatever. But I think that we, it is upon us then to seek to understand and minimize the biases or fight the biases that we have. Because unconscious bias exists for all of us, right? I have my own against certain people from certain backgrounds. You have your own from the same, from different, whatever. But it is upon us to do some of that work and not do a disservice to the people that we are trying to trust and trying to bring them into our lives and love them. It's a lot to ask somebody to be intimate and open and trusting for you. And therefore, I think that you shouldn't be taking that for granted and be brave enough to do some of the work. But you also have to, you obviously had done some work before that conversation. If that was, if you were starting from jump and you're like, well, I've never really thought about this before, you probably wouldn't have been equipped to do that. So that's why I think even just finding somebody who's already on that path and they're not on squares one or two is a big difference there. So what would your parents say? And this t- test to you, it's interesting. I'm going to assume your parents would be okay if you brought a black guy home, a Chinese guy home, a Muslim guy home, a girl home. But I used to have this conversation with my parents all the time. You know, Back in the day, it was, you're going to meet an Indian girl. I was like, you brought us to Alabama. How is that? It's hard enough to meet the right person, <laughs> never mind, from Alabama, from Punjabi. I, my I grandma just made what cats were in, all of this crap. All the things. And it's not about, to be fair, you have to be happy with yourself before you can be happy with someone else and then extend out the circles to parents and drama and family. But more directly, what has been the reaction from your parents to some of the people you've brought home? Yeah. Well, so I should disclose. So as I mentioned, it was just a single parent household. So my father is not in my life and has never been in in my life. And I don't have a good relationship with my mother. And I would also argue that no one in our family has a really good, strong relationship. And so, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. And I've spent a lot of time and money in therapy to to get to the point where I'm at of, of accepting it. I'm not okay with it, but I've accepted it and accepted that role. But therefore, unlike most people, I don't seek approval from my mom. If she meets a partner of mine, I hope that he is nice to her and I hope that she likes him and has a good experience, et cetera, right? But her disapproval would not dictate anything for me because of that lack of of dynamic and, and closeness that we have. But when I was younger and she did have a little bit more insight and influence and was actually meeting the people that I was with, I think her only thing was not to ever date a Republican, <laughs> which I did in college, by the way. And I think she really- You rebel. Identified. You're such I'm a rebel. such a rebel. I don't know. But anyway, so yeah, that, that's about it. <laughs> so I'm luckily, I'm free to do, do whatever I want to do or do whomever I want to do. So <laughs> I like that. Do whomever I want to do. You're welcome. <laughs> how did you come to your current role right now from wanting to be a photographer? Like how did all of that happen? So after I graduated, again, I just didn't, I didn't have that direction from a parent to be like, oh, you should do this or you should do this. I'm not saying I needed that. I know, I know a lot of people don't necessarily have that, but I didn't really know. I just didn't really have an understanding of what could have come next. And so I got a job out of college that was an admin assistant job. I, I probably didn't need a college degree for it. 
and slowly got into marketing and whatever, just was doing roles that I was fine with. And I've always kind of been a hustler and kind of, I don't know, I got hired as like director of marketing for the small life insurance firm. And I literally went home and Googled what marketing was, how how it works. Like that was legit my response when I got the offer, bless them for hiring me. But my ex, that my ex partner, who I ended up going to Argentina with, he was and is a great businessman and had some really good conversations with me about you're unhappy in your role right now. Think about the things that you're good at, that you want to do, that you want to pursue, and kind of very quickly landed on people and, and talent and moving in that space. And so moved into the talent acquisition space. And then over the last few years, I've moved into more of like the broader corporate talent and people and a little bit of HR employee engagement, et cetera, work. But when I went to Argentina, I had started my own firm down there and and did talent acquisition with clients in San Francisco and then in Denver. And then moving to Los Angeles, I got hired at a great consulting firm. And that's also where I first started doing diversity and inclusion work on the side. Like That's not what they were paying me for, but it was a company that really supported and, and advocated for being involved in internal projects and building the organization and making it the place that you you want to be working at. So got into that work. And then after, I mean, goodness, I mean, how, <laughs> there's been so many peoples and names of Black people that have been murdered by the police throughout the last X number of years, just that we've known and just that, that have been turned into hashtags. But after more of that work, more of that started happening, and we had more deep conversations and more conversations about like Charlottesville and these other horrible events and things, I just realized that this is a part of the work that I wanted to do a little bit more of and focus on a little bit more in. Paradigm reached out to me. They had hunted me and I didn't even know that they existed, even though they were in my backyard in San Francisco. And it's a diversity and inclusion firm that focuses on going in and helping to build more inclusive environments, create that sense of belonging, make sure that people are receiving equitable pay and that the leadership teams are having the right initiatives in their leadership team and in their kind of longer term strategies. And so to be fair, I don't know, I I couldn't imagine doing this work for any other company. Maybe five years, I'll I'll feel differently about that and want to do go to a different firm for different growth reasons. But to be able to be a part of a company that is helping to make an actual legitimate change. And we're work, we work with very prominent organizations and companies. And so we know that we have a lot of impact. The amount of people and employees and decision makers that we are touching on a, every year, it's, it's incredible. So yeah, I couldn't, couldn't imagine doing this work anywhere else. Well, as someone who's doing the work, I just want to ask the darker side of the question. What's not working? Not at Paradigm, but you're going into these other companies. You're trying to get them to be better, to do better. But is there resistance? What's the resistance? What's the pushback? Why aren't we there yet, honestly? And never mind the systemic issues in our society, but it seems obvious that companies need to be doing this work, but they're not. Yep. Why not? Yep. I mean, it's so complex and we could have like a five-hour conversation <laughs> about this. But the first thing that comes to my mind that I hope resonates for everyone is Amy Cooper. Right. She was the woman who tried to, who called the cops on the black guy who was bird watching in Central Park and completely weaponized her privilege and her advantage over this black man if like the cops showed up and whatever story that she was saying, et cetera, et cetera. And so that despite all of the horrible things that have happened in recent years, and obviously many people have lost their lives, the Amy Cooper situation is probably the most frustrating and the most scary for me because. I don't know, you meet her, I don't know, maybe she's one of our clients, maybe you meet her at a, at a house party or a cocktail party. And she's like, Oh, yeah, she's the girl next door. She's she's yeah. girl next door. And, and she'll tell you, she's everywhere, how yeah. important this work is. And that's why she voted for Hillary, or that's why she donates to the ACLU or etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But she's not doing the work on her own biases and her own not doing the real work there. And so 
in our work, I think we do see a lot of issues with companies that it is lip service. They have XYZ initiatives this year, and this is checking one of those boxes. And that happens sometimes. But we also do work with a lot of really amazing organizations that are really trying to do amazing work, and they're willing to put the resources and the finances and all of that on the table to to accomplish it. But it is hard. Organizational change is easier of the other changes. You know, it's easier to change companies than it is to change the housing system or whatever it might be, but it is still hard to change and it is still difficult to get everybody on board. And if you have parts of an executive team that don't really believe in privilege or don't really believe in, they're not really quite understanding the BLM movement and they're the one person and everybody else maybe is a little bit more advanced, just that one person will still hold it back, right? So it is really complex, or you have really great well-intentioned organizations that they just have a a limited amount of budget for this. And and that's real too. So it is really complex. And, but still, we're we're so fortunate to be able to work with as many companies as we are, and we still have to turn away business because we're, we just can't handle all of it. But also you get to not everybody I don't know. I think people try to jump in, especially after George Floyd. They're like, well, let me jump into step number 10. Let's do anti-racist work now. And it's like, whoa, whoa, you whoa. You got to do the work. Yeah. yeah. One through nine. Yeah. Work, exactly. You need an internal common language to even, a vocabulary to even talk about this work, right? So let's start there. So I think we're starting to see people be a little bit more focused and a little bit more, the intentions are there, but now they're turning it into more, I think, legitimate action or, or productive action. So yeah. So and those are the companies that we tend to be working with and kind of prioritizing our time with. I feel like we've talked to some with a few other guests, but the term racism and the idea of race relations, whatever, it's not binary. It's a spectrum to your point of the girl in Central Park. She means well. I mean, there have been studies out of MIT about when they put more Hispanic people riding the train, people's points of view change, right? Not in my backyard. And, and it's not even single dimension. There's multi dimensions to the spectrum. And I feel The first step is kind of realizing that there might be a problem and that you're willing to kind of assess what it is or isn't. We all have blind spots, every one of us. And I think until people, it's like, that's the first part of doing the work, accepting that there is a spectrum. Because so when trying to have a conversation with someone on the far right, they shut down the minute you bring that up immediately, right? And there's someone once told me it's it's better to be effective than to be right. And in that case, it is because if, if they walk away from the conversation, I can't solve this. Yeah. And I wish it's an uncomfortable thing to do. And I, I don't want to be the one to do it. But should there be like a spectrum? You take a 20 question test. How? Where are you on the zero to 10? How woke and how racist are you? Because yeah. I know I'm a little bit racist. I know it. And, and anyone who says they're not, are you acting on it? That's the next step. But if it's in your heart and you're not doing the work to overcome it, Yeah. Anyway, it's a spectrum. And I don't know if there's a way I need smarter people than me to come up with that calculation. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's super real. But like the thing about things that are trigger words or trigger experiences, and then as soon as they hear that they shut down, right? And the word privilege is that for a lot of people, if you say privilege to many, maybe, you know, white men, they're going to be like, No, I'm done. This is it. And I'm literally not able to hear anything that you're saying after this, after you throw this word on the table. And so again, obviously, if you're having a conversation about anything, maybe you're having a conversation with your spouse, and you say something, and then they just shut, shut down. And they're like, Nope, can't hear you can't can't talk to you about this. Well, like, where are you going to go? They're not doing the work, you're not having a productive conversation anymore. Everything is just completely stalled. And so, yeah, you're right. You have to be able to to get over some of those things. And it's going to be uncomfortable. That's the number one rule for this work. If it's not uncomfortable, it's not working. You're not doing the actual work for it, right? And it has to get really uncomfortable, I would argue. And so with so many people 
don't want to be doing that. And also it is their privilege to choose not to. And that's the difference. It sucks to do this work sometimes. There are so many other novels that I would love to be reading, but instead I'm reading a book on, I don't know, gentrification right now. And I'm like, yeah, I just had a really big day at work. I don't want to sit down and read this for an hour. This content is heavy, but this is also what I've committed to in my own personal growth. Right. And so you have to do that. You have to be willing to do that. And not everybody is as focused on that growth. And I get that. And that's fine. And you've got kids, you've got other stuff, you're a caretaker, it's coronavirus, I get it, right. But you still have to figure out a way to carve in those moments or those little incremental advances in your own education or your own awareness. Because if you're just going to like shut the conversation down and walk away, nothing's going to happen. That's literally a non-starter. Yeah, you're so right. Well, Tess, we've covered so much ground. I feel like we've talked about systemic issues. We've talked about personal lives. I think we solved it all. We may have solved solved it all. (laughs) We even got some book recommendations kind of, which we'll we'll drop some links into the show notes. But what we'd like to do next is take you into speed round. So are you ready for speed round? Yes. And I'm nervous, but please proceed. (laughs) (laughs) No one's ever ready. And this is okay. <laughs> so first question, what's something about you that no one expects? I'm very introverted. Everybody says that. Everybody yeah. says yeah. that. Yeah. While they're on a podcast, by the way. Okay. okay. I mean, trust me. No, I, 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 I get it. No, I get it. As an introvert who runs yeah. a podcast, I get yeah. it. Right, I get it. Right. Yeah. And I think introversion and extroversion, people talk about it and they define it differently, but I define it as how do I get re-energized? How do Energy. I like yep. Exactly. And so I love being around people. I love being out at the bars and restaurants and all of those things. And then I have to go home and like be in silence for a few hours at a time or the next day. Right. So, yeah, I think, I mean, yes, there are true extroverts, but I think the same way everyone's lactose intolerant, just to varying degrees, I think we're all introverts. It's just the energy depletion, how much time it takes. Everyone needs time to recharge. As an introvert, I say that like, yeah, I'll go to the bars, but then I just want to go read a comic book for three hours. Yeah. That's real. That's real. I would argue that's fair. Speaking of that, so what's a book, movie, or show that you would recommend with characters that you can relate to? Oh, goodness gracious. With characters I can relate to. You're putting me on the spot now. I mean, can I just recommend my favorite movie that I feel everybody Okay. That's <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> The Intouchables, not The Untouchables, because that's a Western and that's a very different direction than what we're going at, but it's called The Intouchables. That's a French film that came out, I don't know, 15 years ago. It's one of the most beautiful films, I think, in in my opinion, and it's just, it's lovely. So it can be like very emotional and very pensive and whatever sometimes. And so I, I will lean into a lot of art when I need to have those moments. And this is a movie that no matter what you're feeling, kind of happy or sad or whatever, it kind of hits all of, on all of those things. So French films. Because <laughs> I, I love... Watch one, watch that. <laughs> it's by a Polish director, but the French film, The Three Colors Trilogy, it kind of takes me to that place too. So anyway. Okay, wonderful. Unrelated. So we actually skip this question normally, but as a fellow traveler, I have to ask this with a caveat. What's one place in the world that you've been to that you want to go back to and it can't be in Latin America? Oh, that's okay. Well, that's actually easy because I I was like, that's hard. No, it's not. It's fine. Well, I do actually repeat countries a lot. So despite all of my travels, I've hit 32 and some of those I've hit multiple times. I mean, if I have to just pick one, I'll just say, I'll say for now the Philippines. Why? 
So first of all, I travel alone a lot. And as a woman, that is just a different experience. And so I did the Philippines, I think in 2017, and just went to one island area, but then skipped Manila because it is pretty darn unsafe. But there's also some really, well, I don't know about now, there were some really great restaurants and some really great things to do there, but it is a fairly big and unsafe city. So I'd love to go back and actually do a night or two in Manila and then go to hit some of the other islands. I'm a big beach person. That's part of the reason I just moved to LA and I live a few blocks from from the water in Venice, but that's a different level of beach and island and sea beauty. So awesome. We should totally get together. I'm in Sherman Oaks. Oh, I would love that. And I love Venice. So. Oh, Venice is fantastic. I'm discovering more and more each day. So, so much fun. What is your favorite mom dish? This is silly. You're going to laugh. You're not going to expect this. My favorite mom dish <laughs> was corned beef and cabbage that my mom made. And so every year she would make whatever dish we wanted on our birthdays. And that would be the one that I would select. And nobody in the family liked it. Everyone hated it, but I would order it every single year. And I don't know. For whatever reason, that was my favorite thing, which I'm not even a big corned beef fan. And now I, I don't even remember the last time I ate it, but when I was a child, I think there was, there was cheese sauce on the cabbage. That's probably why. So you know. Cheese sauce? I've never had that on cabbage. Yeah. Or corned beef. Yeah. Well, yeah. she's from Nebraska. So there's a lot of, a lot of interesting cuisine coming out of Nebraska <laughs> by way of Ireland. <laughs> what is your least favorite food? Eggplant. So I feel as if in Argentina, they only have five vegetables to choose from. And I never had an issue with eggplant before that. But my ex from Argentina would make a tart of eggplant and cheese. And he did it, I don't know, 20 too many times. And I just can't do it anymore. So tart and eggplant. I mean, I eat a lot of eggplant. Those two words do not go together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like a pie, essentially. It's like a pie crust. Okay. Okay. I got you. Um, I got you. I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's like slimy. It's not good. There's better things, I feel. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that sounds weird. That just sounds weird. All of our eggplant fans just unsubscribe. <laughs> we hate her. <laughs> Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Oh, gosh. So one of my favorite musical artists right now is Dermot Kennedy. And he's from Dublin, singer, songwriter, music, very deep, very pensive, very emotional work. If you're sensing a theme here. And I'm obsessed with him right now. So I've been like listening to him over the last few years and more into him lately, but I'm just, I'm fascinated with what he's producing. And I think the writer in me is also just really curious to learn more about his process. And my writing is also very similar. It's like, <laughs> let me tell you about this truck that I just got hit by and all the feelings and emotions that came from that. Right. So yeah, he'd be someone I'd be curious to learn a little bit more about. What's the album you'd recommend by him if someone were to check him out? He only has one right now. It's called Without Fear, but he's blowing up on the UK charts and whatnot. So Dermot Kennedy, Without Fear. Rad. So last question, Tess, are you ready? Mm-hmm. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Goodness. I feel like it's understanding that identity is what it is for you. You don't have to identify in a certain way, culturally, from a religious standpoint, ethnically, necessarily. I think that it's the ability to figure out what part of your world and your experiences make the most sense and resonate the most with you and being able to lean into those and also being able to shy away from the ones that aren't serving you, even if those are defined by your parents or are encouraged by your communities. I think a lot of folks are immigrants or sons and daughters of first or second or third generation immigrants. Like that's the story of this country. It's what makes it a beautiful place often, (laughs) not always. But yeah, I would say that it's being able to kind of redefine identity and how it works for you, making sure that it serves you. That's such a great answer. Thank you. 
Tess, I've I've had a lot of fun. I feel like we we met a long time ago, and then yeah. it took forever to get this on the books. I'm I'm so glad you joined us and kind of shared your truth and your story. Great, thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. It's like Christmas times a thousand on steroids. <laughs> like everything is decked out in red, even though we weren't in China or Taiwan. The lion dance was a huge thing. The lion dance troupe practiced for months. It was just something my Chinese school threw together. And then I saw some of the next level stuff that some of the people do. Like they jump on each other's heads and simulate the lion going upright. That was nuts. That's when I was like, okay, some people are really hardcore. I mean, they would take that head and jump onto somebody's shoulders and get it's like what the hell i mean it's like some of it is really cool but all i did was just kind of walk around that's it for now i've been Roman segel and i'm still sharon lee tony remember we're all modern minorities out there we'll talk to you soon it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.